0: In today's feature report, WFHB's Norm Holy examines the economics of energy with Professor Sonia Carley of IU's School of Public and Environmental Affairs.
1: Tell us about the economics of coal-fired utilities.
0: Sure, I'd be happy to. Thank you for having me. Uh, So the economics of coal in general and coal power plants... uh, I would say we are at a place in market um, conditions where coal is a declining industry. We are uh, dec- uh, coal production is declining, but also plans for future power plants uh, are thin. We don't have very many. Um, in development, and we don't have many planned over the next 10 to 15 years across the country. Um, So clearly, coal is a declining industry, and the question then is, what is the reason behind that? What are the factors? Uh, And I would say generally that, um, of course, policy and regulation might play a role in the decline of the coal industry, but that's far less significant than general market dynamics or other market trends that are happening simultaneously within the electricity industry. And these trends uh, are primarily the increase of natural gas and of renewables, particularly wind and solar. Um, So as the price of natural gas and wind and solar have all come down, uh, capacity expansion in all three of these areas has gone up significantly, and these resources essentially have, have crowded out. Uh, coal generation. So the the leading reason that the coal industry is declining is because of these competitive or competitor resources.
1: Trump has been wanting to uh, remove regulations. And so he's, I I think the latest thing is that coal-fired plants can, to some extent, set their own objectives in terms of what their stack gases are like. I mean, is that actually going to revive the coal industry or Will that not have much of an effect?
0: I don't think very many people think that it will revive the coal industry. I think that the effect will be minimal. Um, We may see some coal power plants stay online a little bit longer um, and not retire as soon as one might have expected. Um, But we're still not going to see a... um, a resurgence in coal. We're also not going to see a resurgence in plans for developing new coal power plants. Um, so I don't anticipate that these changes will fundamentally affect um, the the market potential for coal. How
1: do the costs compare for coal-fired electricity versus uh, natural gas-fired or solar or wind?
0: Well, it depends on who you ask and which information you use. Uh, It depends also on what kind of metrics you use, whether you're using a levelized cost of electricity or some other metric. Um, but the majority of estimates nowadays um, actually do not show coal to be the cheapest resource anymore. Coal is more expensive than these um, competitive resources, such as natural gas, which is much cheaper, wind is much cheaper, and um, solar is on the decline. Uh, this one really depends on which estimate you're using. Some might put it a little above coal. Some might put it below coal. Um, but within the next couple of years, as the price of solar continues to decline, we'll, we'll most likely see it a below coal.
1: One of the issues in in solar is battery or however you store the energy that's Mm -hmm. produced.
0: Well, yeah, you're exactly right. Um, The industry at large has developed significantly over the last decade. Um, The price of storage and the types of storage technologies that are available have have advanced so much. So there are no perfect storage options that are out there right now, but I think within the next several years we'll see uh, some really great options that that might actually be price competitive.
1: I'd like to have you comment on on a couple of those approaches to storage one of them is just a battery storage and then the other is essentially pumping water up to a higher reservoir that can be released Mm -hmm. when uh, there are needs for electricity and there are several other kind of related things to that Uh, is there a clear winner evolving in that whole competition
0: no, I don't think at this point there's a clear winner, but I, I think you're exactly right that there are a variety of different alternatives. Um, so the ones that you mentioned, one would be more of a kind of, you know, conventional storage for electricity. The other that you mentioned is pumped hydroelectric storage. So again, as you noted, pulling water up to a, an upper reservoir and then releasing it at times when the electricity is needed. Um, so those are both great options. They're used in different applications. I think it's also important to think about the scale of different storage options. Um, So as we continue to deploy smaller scale more distributed resources, such as solar for residential applications, we'll see the increased use of smaller scale kind of um, what's referred to as behind the meter storage, which is sitting essentially at somebody's residence so that they're able to use that storage application in conjunction with their solar. Or they might have an electric vehicle, for example, and they can actually um, tap into the battery of the electric vehicle and give and take electricity as needed. So there are a variety of different storage options, and they run the gamut in terms of scale as well.
1: Speaking of vehicles, I I know you've worked on the economics of electric vehicles. Uh, Tell us what your findings are.
0: Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, Let me just tell you a little bit about how I've approached electric vehicles. And um, that's, one, primarily from the consumer side, and that's thinking about uh, which consumers are interested in electric vehicles and what, um, what characteristics predict interest. Uh, within a consumer, within an individual. So what makes one more or less likely to want to purchase an electric vehicle? Um, and also uh, some research on policies in which policies, policies we have in place for electric vehicles and um, thinking through how these policies might lead to the deployment or not of electric vehicles. So some of um, the, the leading findings are that consumers, kind of the early adopter consumers, uh, tend to be Uh, more highly educated, they tend to be more concerned about environmental issues and climate change, uh, and they're particularly interested in in newer technologies and and technological development, or at least being a pioneer, if you will, um, in technology development. Uh, On the policy side, we find that uh, many of the policies that we have in place Um, Particularly, the federal level tax credit as well as some of the state um, grant programs that are available for electric vehicles are highly effective at increasing the rate of deployment of electric vehicles. Um, We also find that the ZEV program, which is the Zero Emission Vehicle Program, which is present in California as well as nine other states throughout the country, this is essentially a percentage mandate for electric vehicles. Um, We find that this, this ZEV program at this point has not yet led to an increase in electric vehicles in the places where it's instituted. Um, but this program is kind of ratcheting up in intensity over time, so we would expect that um, as this mandate becomes tighter, that it would become more effective at, at deploying electric vehicles in those very specific states.
1: Tell us about um, the economics of the individual owner um, having an electric vehicle. Is it economically a good solution at this point?
0: Um, Well, one would have to do a calculation of the total cost of ownership of a vehicle. And, of course, this depends on the vehicle that one chooses. Um, It also depends on the price of gasoline at the time. And A study that we published a few years ago focuses on that information and how how a consumer makes a decision about purchasing a vehicle. And one thing we found is that um, providing full information to consumers helps inform their decision about buying an electric vehicle or a more efficient vehicle. And We actually studied the, the Environmental Protection Agency labels, the new labels that are available on cars, and we looked at the difference between the old label, pre-2011 label, and the new label, and whether the new information that's available on the label actually changes one's inclination towards which car they would buy. And we find that the new label actually does not provide sufficiently more information to drive consumer decisions about buying an efficient vehicle. But if you, if one, actually calculates a total cost of ownership of the vehicle and breaks it down into a monthly estimate, it significantly changes the decision that consumers make about whether to buy an electric vehicle or not. So we find that just having this kind of monthly estimate leads people to choose an electric vehicle over any alternative, like a a, a conventional vehicle, internal combustion vehicle.
1: Uh, Can you guide us toward uh, a place where people can see what the factors are and how they assess whether they want to buy an electric vehicle?
0: Here at SPIA, we have a um, a transportation research group, and it's uh, primarily a, an electric transportation research group. Um, so we have a website at SPIA, at the School of Public and Environmental Affairs, where we update or where we post um, our publications on electric vehicles. So the, um, the link is spia.indiana.edu slash faculty dash research slash research slash working dash groups slash electric dash vehicles. Uh,
1: I'd like to thank you very much for the interview.
0: Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it.